All right, good evening, everyone. Uh, if it was a more charismatic church, then I would have heard something back, but I didn't expect much. All right. So, guys, we, uh, we're busy with our series on the life of Moses. And uh, the idea is that before the end of the series, that mural will be up there. Um, and we will try to figure out why it is poetic for us to keep working on it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, this will be nice. Um, we, need to, we need to paint the picture systematically um, what Moses is and how it impacts our lives. And as we systematically go through it, that picture will materialize as well, systematically. Huh? That's pretty deep stuff. We think about everything here. So, um, guys, in 2014, there was, a, there was a movie, and I was very excited about this movie because it was directed by a guy called Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott is the guy who directed Gladiator, and he's probably, he's supposed to be more famous for the guy who directed Blade Runner. But I'm talking about the one in the 80s, which was absolutely brilliant. Um, and so, so this guy, is, he's, he's a bit of a genius. And then I heard he was the guy who was going to start uh, uh, with this whole project on Moses. And the working title was Exodus of Gods and Kings. So here's a, here's a serious uh, filmmaker, and he's taking on a, some Christian material. And that is exciting. Because one of my confessions is that I'm not particularly excited when Christians, filmmakers, Christian filmmakers, tackle Christian projects, whether it is, and, and, and sorry for the offense, but whether it is, you know, facing the giants or faith like potatoes or faith like facing giant potatoes, the, the, it's, it's, it's usually not of a particular quality. So when, I, when there's a mainline, a mainline acad academic, a mainline uh, filmmaker taking on Moses, that's very exciting. And uh, unfortunately, it fell flat. Why? Because, b because Ridley Scott, although he, he took some, you know, uh, he interpreted this, this story, and that's fine, the, the end product was flat because he saw, I think he read the story of, of Israel and its liberation, the Exodus, as primary, primarily a story of political liberation. And he doesn't understand the spiritual dimension to it. That it is also um, a story, and, and perhaps even primarily a story, of spiritual liberation. And the result is that, that the way that they represent God is, is quite petty. The, it, it, it doesn't have the heart and soul. And even most critics agreed that the, the movie fell, fell flat. So I, today, want to look at the ten plagues, at least the nine plagues, um, if, if I want to be more honest, so, so next week, Anna is going to look at the Passover. But, um, and, and I want us to just understand the spiritual dimension behind this, um, uh, you know, this, this very fascinating and this very famous story. The difficulty, however, preaching about this is that it comes from all over Scripture. So it's about four to five chapters. I'm not going to read all of that you guys. So I'm just going to pick a couple of, of snapshots. So we're going to start in Exodus 5. I just want to read three verses from there. Afterwards, this is Exodus 5, uh, 1 to 3. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, <clears throat> thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, 
Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let you go. And then I want to jump over to Exodus 7 and read from verse 14. <clears throat> this is the first plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And then I want to jump over to Exodus 10 and uh, just read a little bit about the ninth plague. So this is Exodus 10 from verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, and there, th that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, um, uh, called Moses and said, the people of Israel, uh, go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take, we must, we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. Um, <clears throat> and we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh, then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. It is ironic because this conversation is happening in the dark, by the way. Um, all right, so, so friends, I want us to, to just frame, fr frame the story. If we want to have an interpretive lens to try and make sense of, 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 of the 10 plagues. There are a couple of things that we need to understand. The first one is this. That question that Pharaoh asks right in the beginning, and that is why we read chapter 5, just three verses. He asks a question. This is the first time that Aaron and Moses are coming up to, uh, to Pharaoh, and they say, let the people go. And then he says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And to a large extent, the plagues that follows, uh, the plagues that follow, are a response to that question. Are you with me? Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice? And the rest of the story is sort of colored in by that by that question. Now, that's the one thing that we need to understand. The other thing that we need to understand is 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 this strange line that we hear over and over again and we cannot quite make sense of it and if you read the whole narrative you're going to see it again over and over and it seems a little bit silly after a while so um he says moses says we must go we must go on a three days journey into the wilderness so that we can worship our god there 
And what is interesting is it doesn't really know, it doesn't really seem as if Moses is entirely sure how exactly this three-day journey will work and how they will worship the Lord in the wilderness. He just says, I'm sorry, Pharaoh, I know you want to keep our livestock. I, I can't even give you that. We need to take them because we need to go worship the Lord out there in the wilderness. All right. So those are two things that I think are critical if we want to try and unpack this, this passage. Now, the question <clears throat> that, that Pharaoh is asking is, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who is this Yahweh character? And you can see that the standoff begins with this, with this question. Now, one thing that we need to understand is that it seems as if the plagues are not arbitrary, they are not willy-nilly, it's not a question of God saying, oh, you wanna, you wanna see that I'm God? Okay, um, fire. And then Pharaoh catches fire. And then Pharaoh says, stop, 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 stop. Okay, I'll stop, but then you, then you know who's, the, who's God, right? He's the one who just lit you. Um, or, you know, you can even get more imaginative. Moses could go up there and say, um, who is the Lord that I should obey him? He is the Lord who will turn all your family members into elephants immediately. Boom, 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 boom. How do you like that? You want to be unelephanted? Well, just admit that Yahweh is cool. You know, the, 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 the plagues can be more interesting. They are actually not that interesting. They are actually quite natural to a large extent. So that means that there's something going on. God is not arbitrary. He's not petty. He's not just trying to uh, inflict harm on them just for the sake of it. There's a method behind it. So one of the things that most commentators trying to make sense of this says is the following, that all of these things, it's sometimes difficult to draw the line completely, but all of the plagues are actually taking on various Egyptian deities. So uh, you might have heard this line, denial is not just a river in Egypt. And uh, that usually is something that you say when somebody says, no, I don't have an addiction problem. No, 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 I can, I can stop smoking anytime I want. And then it's appropriate to use that line. Denial is not just a river in Egypt. But in the olden days, it was also not just a river in Egypt. It was a god of sorts. It was animated. It was the, the, the god of fertility that was closely connected with the Nile uh, itself. So when God strikes the Nile, that is a standoff between the gods. Are you with me? It is not just a random plague. Now, it, it doesn't always fit perfectly. So when you, when you look at the, the plagues and you look at the frogs and you look at the flies and you look at, so it's not necessarily that God is now, ah, I am tackling the fly God. Or you see, ah, I'm now tackling the, 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 the hail God. It, it doesn't work perfectly like that. But even later on in the Torah, when they reflected on the plagues, they picked up on this pattern. So for example, in Numbers 33, verse 4, it says, on the Egyptian gods, the Lord executed judgment. You see that, that language. It means that for a lot of Jews, the, the reason why these plagues happened is because that God was judging these false deities. Exodus 12, verse 12, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Exodus 15, 11, when, just when they are out and they are reflecting on the Exodus and they say, who among the gods are like you? So this is a standoff between the gods, all right? Again, be careful to make a direct link. Some, some preachers do that, and I think they are a little bit overexcited, but there's definitely, definitely a link like that. So, for example, if we look at the second plague, there's 
this god, there was this god with a frog head called Heket. So, I mean, there's a lot of weird stuff in Egypt, and one of the weird things that you can see is this god with a frog head, and, uh, and this is Heket. So is God maybe responding to that? Perhaps. But where it becomes quite patently obvious is you get to the ninth plague. Now, there's one god in Egypt that most of you know, even though you're not Egypt- Egyptologists, as far as I know. There's one god in Egypt that you guys know. Can you give me that name? Ra. There we go, Ra. That would be a weird thing if somebody didn't have the context, you know, just Ra. It's, it's, a, weird, it's a weird sound to make in church. But, but Ra is the sun god. And those of you who's ever been in Egypt knows that Ra is kind of potent. Okay? It gets really hot there. So I understand why they want to appease Ra every, every now and then. So what is the ninth plague? What is the penultimate plague? Complete darkness. What is the message that is being sent? Oh, you say Ra is the head of your pantheon? You say Ra is the cool guy in town? Darkness for three days. Every Egyptian walking, what happened to Ra? No, there's this God called Yahweh, and apparently uh, he, and he's got this weird follower called Moses, and he said that this is going to happen next. He's going to block the, the sun. Lastly, a deity in ancient Egypt that was alongside Ra in terms of importance were the pharaohs themselves, or the whole family. They were considered divine avatars of, as a matter of fact, the pharaoh was considered the son of the sun. The sun, S-U, of the sun, S-O, are you with me? The son of Ra, all right? So when the firstborn of, the, of pharaoh's family, when they are struck, Again, you see this standoff um, happening. But friends, I want you to understand, again, I I just feel like I need to stress this, that this is not just a naked display of power on God's behalf. It is very strategic. It is very calculated. And the Egyptians are supposed to receive this message. It is answering Pharaoh's question. Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? All right. There's something else that's, that's, that's quite interesting, <clears throat> and that is, uh, it is the third plague that you've got gnats all over the place, gnats. Now, uh, gnats, I think, it's sort of a type of uh, what we call in English, mechi. Um, so it's, it's like a type of small bug, wingy type of thing. Uh, what do you call an insect specialist, like an entomologist, what is it? Yeah, yeah. So, so from an entomological perspective, it is like a, like a very small, wingy type of uh, thingy. You know what I mean? And, uh, and you just had these wingy thingies all over all of Egypt, all right? And the, what is interesting is it's only after the gnats appear, you've got all these, these small bugs everywhere, that the Egyptians... The Egyptian priests come to Pharaoh and say, I think the finger of God is here. That's weird. Why are you guys so impressed with, with these little insects? What's going on? Why are you guys so impressed with that? Well, the Egyptian priests were very serious about ritual purity when it came to uh, sacrificing in the temples. So they were very serious about no bug, no lice, nothing is supposed to be on you. To such an extent that they shaved everything. If you, if you see movies and you, and you think, these Egyptian priests look weird, it be, it's because they were weird. They would shave their head, 
they would shave every part of their body twice, every second day. Their eyebrows, eyelashes, everything, no hair, because a lice or something can, can stick onto that and then you will contaminate the whole pagan temple, the whole pagan ritual. So, so now there's gnats everywhere. They cannot clean themselves fast enough. So what happens with the whole pagan process? The pagan temple, it shuts down. There's a little sign outside that says temporarily out of order because the, the, the priests cannot do, their, cannot do their, 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 their job. So that's the one bit. But the other thing is, when we think of the plagues today, and that's almost the, the feeling that you sometimes get when, when you watch that, that, that Ridley Scott movie and, and when you think about the plagues, maybe you just read it by yourself, one, think, one might think that this God is very petty and he's quite ruthless in how he's just you know, delivering these plagues on these, on these people. But just notice that if God was just petty and if he was just ruthless, why is he warning them every time? If this is just to show, oh, I want to show you my power, a lot of people are going to die. Why is he constantly saying, for example, when it's the, the, the hail plague, he goes to them and says, guys, please uh, just bring in your livestock and uh, make sure you don't have servants out in the field because it's going to be quite dangerous. Or you can stop this already by just letting the people go. So do you understand what I'm saying? It's, it's not this very vindictive picture of God that you get that's got a warning attached to everything and there's a way to stop it immediately. So there, there's something that we need to challenge there. And something else that I think is, is interesting is that through the plagues, and maybe that's another reason why the, the plagues happened, it wasn't just to strong arm Pharaoh, but also through the plagues, through these acts of power, through this standoff between the Egyptian gods, it seems like many Egyptians got on board and started worshiping the true God. So for example, in Exodus 12, verse 38, it says, and a mixed multitude were with them. A mixed multitude. They were Egyptians who became God-fearing through this process and joined Moses in the Exodus. They realized that their gods are null, null, uh, none, what's the word, none and void, null and void? Null and void, in, against, the, uh, against Yahweh. All right, so, so perhaps it was to bring the Egyptian people on board as well. Now, friends, I said it in the beginning, I'm going to say it again, that it is not primarily, primarily a story of, it, it, it is, it is a story of political liberation, but it is also a story of spiritual liberation. Israel was not just a victim of political tyranny, they were the victims of spiritual tyranny. Now here's the line that we read, and it, 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 it doesn't quite fit, it's, it's almost difficult to make sense of it, that we see repeatedly throughout this account. Moses will go to the Pharaoh and say, Let, you must go because we must go into the wilderness, a three days journey, and there we must worship the Lord. So he's talking about, we need to go to Mount Sinai, we need to go to Mount Sinai, we need to go to Mount Sinai. So what's going on there? Israel, by virtue of being in Egypt, in proximity to all these Egyptian gods, they've obviously been swallowed into this whole system. And God, in, as part of his liberation project, in his attempt to get them on track, to get them to, 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 to praise correctly, needs to take them out of that setup and teach them afresh what true praise, what true worship looks like. That's why they need to go out into the desert, uncontaminated by pagan religion, and he must start afresh with them there. 
And this is why we see this theme over and over again. Now, there's a term that G.K. Chesterton coined called chronological snobbery. And that is the idea that we as moderns look back into the past and we think that everything is just so stupid. So we think, oh man, I can't believe these people believed that um, you know, a frog was a deity of sorts, or I can't believe this, or I can't believe that. And it's easy for us to mock them and think that they are primitive, etc., etc. But there's something going on there. And, 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 and I mean, we should obviously reject this. Uh, we must step away from this chronological snobbery because we can learn so much. And we are also blind to our own failings when we do that. But there's something that we need to understand, and that is that the plagues happened very naturally to a certain degree. So, for example, you've got the Nile that is now contaminated, all right? And now this ecosystem breaks down. So what is the next thing that happens as soon as the, Nile, uh, the, the Nile's e ecosystem has broken down? What's the next thing that happens? Frogs running away from the water because it, it, it's not a conducive place for them. So now they are looking for you know, sort of new real estate. So they're going into the rest of, of, of Cairo and well, Egypt, I mean, wh wh wherever they were. And, and then what is the next step? Gnats. What happened? The frogs died. What happens when things die? What, what happens when a gazillion frogs die? Not sure if any of you have ever seen it, but you don't need a massive imagination or a, a degree in entomology to know that you've got all sorts of bugs around the, the corpses of these, of these frogs. What happens next? Flies. You've got dead things, you're gonna have flies there, all right? So flies come in. What happens next? Disease, animal disease. Why? Because there's a lot of gross stuff going around there and it's, it's not a very hygienic place. So what happens next? Well, humans, they've got, they get boils. They, they are now also contaminated by all these things. And then you've got, the, let's say the last three plagues break with this natural order. But by and large, you have this very, natural progression. And here, here's how some of the commentators would reflect on this. They would say the following, that when we disobey God, you have this natural disintegration that happens. So if you look at this, the beginning of Genesis, it's all about order. It's all about God ordering reality. He separates the water above from the waters below. He separates the land animals from the sea animals or the water animals. Everything is separated. There's order that comes in. It seems the picture in the Hebrew imagination is that there's right praise. Everything is in order. But now, when we disobey God, what happens with the plagues, it's almost the inverse of it. It is disorder creeping into our lives systematically. So for example, Humans are made from dust. That's what we read in the Genesis account. Now, the gnats, they come from the dust. So it, it almost seems an inverse from the Genesis account. So if we continue on, you've got frogs coming from, from the Nile, okay? So, so, so why is that interesting? Well, there was this clear separation in the Genesis account of you've got the land animals, and, and, and Genesis even, you know, they really stress it. The, the sea and all the animals in the sea, the land and all the animals on the land, and now you have an amphibian. It's a crossover, a hybrid. It is sort of a Jewish way of saying, we've got non-order, non-order. What happens next? You've got the waters above from the waters below, and the, there's this big 
um, thing that keeps the water there and the water here, and you try to keep this world apart, now all hail breaks loose, and it's as if this world is not, there's no order anymore, okay? So you don't have, you don't have the order of Genesis. You have decreation. And then in the Genesis account, everything is about life and light, but in the plague account, it ends with darkness and death. So it's an inversion of the creation account. Do you guys see that? Can you see how it is turning it on its, on its head? Now, the, the message, again, friends, is this. When you disobey God, when you walk away from God, or when you, when you disobey God, there is this systematic disintegration that leads to chaos. Now, let's try and apply that to our, to, to our lives. The Bible has a basic command. You must forgive. It doesn't say, yeah, sometimes you must consider forgiveness. Or, yeah, it's a cool idea. Or, I mean, do whatever you want, but, you know, consider. It says forgive. And let's say this small little command, you disobey. Because somebody really wronged you. You don't forgive. And you know what happens? It's a little Nile River. It's just a Nile River. The rest of your, your country is in order. It's just the Nile River that is a little bit problematic. But you don't forgive this particular person. And it festers, and it festers, and it festers. And you know what happens after a while? The person that wronged you might have been somebody with a white body, or maybe it was somebody with a black body. And as it is not dealt with, as it, in as much as forgiveness is not given to this particular situation, it develops and it festers, and the next moment, it's not like you are struggling to forgive and have good relational ties with everybody that looked like the person who wronged you in the beginning. Maybe it was a man, and now you hate all men. Maybe it was a woman, you hate all women. Maybe it was a white person, maybe it was a black person. And this thing completely gets out of control. What about bitterness? Maybe you're just angry and you are bitter. The Bible says you must go to bed angry. You must sort it out. Let's say, no, but this is righteous anger. I must hold on to this anger. Okay. Keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. Eventually, it gets a life of its own that is uncontrollable. Your whole city, your whole country is reeking and infested with, with this. Friends, if we... And, and, and this is the consequence of disobedience. It is the natural consequence of disobedience. Again, we might think it's so silly, these, these Egyptian pagans or the, the ancients who had their gods and worshipped all their gods and it's so silly, blah, blah, blah. But, but just notice that God gives us various commands and he wants us to flourish. And he says that, you know, work is good, but if you make an idol out of that, it's going to be problematic. A spouse is important. The romantic relationship is important. But if you make an idol out of that thing, it is going to disintegrate. Um, he says money isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it can be very easily become a bad thing if you make it an ultimate thing. And, I mean, we, we again, we, we, we're cool. We're not, um, we're not like the pagans. We're with it. We don't have these issues. But now what happens? People become a workaholic. You worship work to a certain extent. It becomes everything. And the rest of your relationships and the rest of your life disintegrates. You focus so much on your spouse that and you put them or him or her on a pedestal and it becomes so important that when that person dies, you've got, you've got no life left. 
Or maybe that person just acts like an idiot because he's a person or she's a person and it just breaks you. Your whole life crumbles. Or maybe the economy tanks and your economy, your little economy tanks with it as well. And now everything crumbles with it. Here's the thing. All these gods of Egypt, they represented all of these things that I just described. They represented work. It's not like these Egyptians were just super excited with this frog-headed god. No, no, no. It was what that god represented. Fertility or wealth or beauty. Are you guys with me? Do we still worship Aphrodite? <laughs> we are still sex worshippers here. We still worship mammon. Absolutely, money worshippers. We, um, we, we are still obsessed with status and power. All of these categories just had a god and a symbol that we could connect to them in the, in, in, in the ancient world. So we cannot look at this and think, oh man, we've, we've moved so far past it. We are still worshipping false gods to this day. All right. Now friends, I want to make a bit of a jump here. We see, <coughs> excuse me, we see these themes constantly of creation and decreation through scripture. So we see God creating and then you see the chaos in, for example, the story of Noah. It's decreation, so to speak. It is returning to its watery chaos. And then God would call Noah and, said, and say, Noah, I want you to go and be fruitful and multiply. It's almost as if he's, he's starting over. He is recreating this whole project. It is new creation. What we see in, in the Exodus story is that God has recreated, but now through human disobedience, through human dysfunction, you have again all this nonsense creeping into this world, and he's decreating, and now he's going to recreate again. This is the, this is the pattern, and we see it all through Scripture, creation, decreation, and then new creation. Okay. Now, it is no coincidence, friends, that when Jesus timed his death and resurrection, it happened over a Jewish festival celebrating what? The Passover. Celebrating this very incident, this, this, this very account that we are looking at now. Why is that relevant? Because, you see, somehow... In, in the same way that the Exodus is this massive judgment on the false gods of Egypt, the false god keeping the Israelites and the Egyptians enslaved, and you see this judgment on, on that whole process. When Jesus comes along, it is as if he sees his death and resurrection as another judgment on the false gods of this world. Now, let's, let's just push it and, and try and make sense of it. What happened the previous time is God judged the Egyptian gods. Darkness was all, over all the land. There was death and there was liberation that came from that. But in the person of Jesus, when he times his, his, the climax of his ministry around Passover, what happens? When he's on the cross, what happens when he's on the cross? There's darkness over all the land. That rings a bell. Darkness over all the land. What happens? A sun dies on the cross. It's as if you've got the last two plagues in one at Jesus' climax where he, where, where he dies on the cross. And it's terrible, 
But on the cross, Jesus experiences that decreation. The world goes back into chaos. It is super tragic. Three days later, he is risen from the dead. And he appears to people. And then the language of the New Testament is new creation, new creation. It is as if the judgment that was on humanity that God saved in the person of Noah, the judgment that was on, on the gods of, of Pharaoh and God rescued this remnant, this constant creation and then decreation cycle that we see throughout Scripture and this, this tragic cycle of humanity, there's, there's just, it, it just continues to be the same. It's as if God intervenes, he intercepts this cycle and he takes the judgment and the decreation on himself and life comes out on the other side. What I find interesting is that the reason why it is important for us to really make sense of the Exodus, to really make sense of this account in light of our spirituality today is because for Jesus, this is the main picture that we are supposed to have in our heads when we want to make sense of his atoning death and resurrection. He is liberating us. He is taking us on an exodus. Why do you think the language is used that when we are baptized, we are going through the waters? That sounds familiar, right? Why are we going to the promised land through the waters? Well, because somehow with the death of Jesus and his subsequent resurrection, he is unmasking all of the false gods that we still have in our lives. And when he says, go and be my follower, when he invites people in, he is effectively doing this new exodus, inviting us to come with him, to leave this land of slavery. This is not just a once-off thing. This is not just something that happened to the Israelites. Oh, okay, yeah, it was their political liberation. Jesus seems to think that this is our problem today. We are still in bondage. Sometimes it is political liberation that is needed as is the case with the open doors uh, video that we saw. There are many pharaohs to this day stopping people from worshiping the Lord, saying in their own way, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? But don't think that if you do not live in a land where Christians are persecuted that you're off the hook. We are all worshiping false gods. And here we have Jesus inviting us into the wilderness Come. I think the wilderness to a certain extent is church. We must go to this wilderness away from, 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 from all of these pagan false gods and he's going to teach us right praise there. When we come with Jesus and we follow him, he's going to take us into the promised land and then there will be true liberation. And there's a reason why when we come to faith, an image that is often used is you are now coming to the light. And the reason why we can come to the light is because Jesus experienced the uncreation, the decreation, by experiencing utter darkness on the cross. He intercepted that cycle, took the judgment on himself, and he invites us on this exodus away from slavery. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we... We thank you for 
We thank you for not giving up on your creation. We thank you for your judgment on all the false gods, not only of the Egyptians, but also in our lives. Lord, some of us might be in denial and we, uh, we might struggle to see where we are pagan worshippers, where we are worshipping things rather than the Creator. It is our prayer this evening that you will reveal that to us. That you will reveal our idolatry, that you will reveal the, the false gods in our lives. Lord Jesus, we see whenever we pursue these false gods how it always leads to disintegration, but yet we just do it again and again. Thank you that you you judged these false gods. Thank you that you came on the cross and the disintegration that happens in our lives when we pursue it, you experienced on the cross. You took it on yourself. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you invite us on this exodus daily away from slavery. Thank you that we can be part of this new creation project. Lord Jesus, we pray that we will be a community that will gather in the wilderness, that we will move ourselves so that we can learn from you, the true God. And that question that Pharaoh asked, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? We've got such a full picture of that question because we can look at you on the cross and we can see who is Yahweh that we should obey him. He is a God who is willing to die for us. He is a God who is willing to take the judgment that is upon us on himself. That is who Yahweh is, that we should obey him. Thank you for that, Lord Jesus. May we join you in the promised land away from slavery.